Welcome to Super Aging Podcast. This podcast strives to promote healthy aging and amplify caregiver voices while raising awareness about dementia. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Fatou Sise. As you may be aware, June is Alzheimer's and Brain Health Awareness Month. So today we're speaking all things brain health and dementia. Today I am speaking with Dr. Osioma Okanko. Dr. Okanko is a faculty member in the Division of Geriatrics and Gerontology within the Department of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. He is dedicated to the scientific study of promising approaches to prevent the onset of Alzheimer's disease or slowing its progression after the disease onset. On a more personal note, Osioma is also my dear brother. So I'm delighted to have him on today. Welcome to Super Agent Osioma. Thank you, Fatu. It's my pleasure to be here. And I cannot get this green off my face. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get serious, all right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we shall. We, we shall. We shall try. Okay. Um, it's a pleasure to, to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. So, as you know, June is Brain Health Awareness Month. Can you tell me what is the significance for this to you? Yeah, thank you. And I'm glad you brought that up right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. June indeed is a month dedicated to brain health and the Alzheimer's Association obviously invests a lot of time and effort into promoting this month and activities. Mm-hmm. So it's really a time for us to be a little bit more intentional about the activities and our attitude in general towards taking care of our brains because really our, our brains are our most precious assets. Our brains allows us to do everything else that we do in life, including hosting a podcast. <laughs> yes, it does. So it's wonderful to have a month where we can be a little bit more intentional mm-hmm. um, about all of the things that we can do or we should be doing to really preserve these precious assets that we have. Thank you. That is very well said. And yes, including hosting a podcast. (laughs) So your research um, interest includes how and why certain individuals will develop Alzheimer's and why some people may be at risk even when they are not showing symptoms. So my question to you is, what inspired you to pursue this research in Alzheimer's? Thank you. You know... You know, just growing growing up, as you know, we were always surrounded by our elders. Mm -hmm. And we had elders who lived, you know, well into their hundreds of years, you know, Mm -hmm. hundreds and beyond. And they still looked sharp and spry and danced, you know, and did everything that most young people would, would do. And we also had some elders who sadly did not have the same outcome, even when they were in their 60s or 70s. They were. They looked like they were. You know, they were almost at the end of their lives. Mm-hmm. And clearly, back then we did not know what Alzheimer's was or dementia. We just thought it was all getting getting old. But seeing that disparity really ins- inspired me to begin to think about how do people age? How and why do people age so differently? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's even in the same family, siblings, as you know. 
mm-hmm. you know, age so differently. And so when I got into the field of Alzheimer's and began to understand some of the brain changes that occur in Alzheimer's, I remembered all of these experiences growing up. And so I brought that lens of seeing a disparity in the process into this field of Alzheimer's dementia. Wonderful. Well, thank you. So you can you share especially what kind of research you focused on? Yes, yes. So as you mentioned, my, my research is focused on this notion of resilience to Alzheimer's or reserve, cognitive reserve to Alzheimer's. Okay. And essentially, you know, it, it tries to um, understand why is it that individuals whom given either their risk factors, so let's say they carry a copy or two copies of the APOE4 allele. Mm-hmm. So the APOE4 is the gene that is uh, puts individuals at risk for late onset Alzheimer's. Okay. So there are individuals that you might see and they have all of these risk factors, mm-hmm. or even you put them through a brain scan and you see that the brain already are starting to show some of the diseases that mm. we think of as Alzheimer's. Okay. But then they do not go on to show any signs of dementia, even when you follow them into late, late life. So that really is what my lab is focused on, is this broad theme of resilience or reserve or resistance. There are many words that can be used to describe that phenomenon. And so in trying to start, study that, we focus on modifiable, that is lifestyle, as okay. well as non-modifiable, for example, genetics, okay. factors that confer resilience to Alzheimer's. And yes, that is that is kind of what my lab is focused on. Okay, so the focus there is resilience. Great. So um, what's your motivation to choose um, the exercise on delaying the onset of the progression? Right. Great question. So as I mentioned, we my lab studies a host of modifiable factors that might confer resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, but increasingly, we most of our studies in this area look at physical activity and exercise for a number of, of reasons. One is that it is a modifiable factor that most people can easily relate to, you okay. know, but secondly, and probably even more important, is the, is the fact that of the different modifiable factors that we might study, exercise is the one that is most amenable to experimental manipulation. Okay. So, for example, you know, even though we know that education you know, is also a factor that confers resilience to Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. you really cannot do a study where you randomize individuals to get more or less education. You know, that doesn't okay. happen, you know. Um, now, there are some in the real, real world and naturally occurring experiments, not uh-huh. because that is how anyone designed them, but that is how society evolved, where you can then begin to look at what are the benefits and risks of having more or less education. But you probably cannot write a grant to the NIH and say, I'm going to randomize some, some kids to not get any education, right? You know, <laughs> that wouldn't work. So that, that is how exercise and physical activity came to be one of the key lens through which we study resilience or reserve. But pretty much we look at all of a host of factors, some modifiable, some not modifiable, that we believe can and do confer um, protection against the onset 
or the progression of Alzheimer's. Wonderful. Well, thank you. So what kind of exercise would you say are more beneficial to brain health? You know, this, this is a question we get often, you know, okay. and, and there, are, there are a couple of ways I can answer it. I would say, first of all, all exercise is good for your brain. Okay. There is no exercise as long as it is done um, safely and mm-hmm. under the um, direction and care of your physician. All exercises are beneficial for brain health. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, the research and the evidence seems to favor what is called aerobic exercise. Okay. And that is the kind of exercise that kind of resists your heart, your heart rate. Okay. Um, and there are all, all, all kinds of them, you know, including, you know, the most common one being running, you know, okay. swimming. So pretty much any, any exercise that kind of elevates your cardiac response is one mm-hmm. that actually um, has, has been, been shown to have the greatest potential for being beneficial for brain health. Thank you. So is there an ideal age to start exercise? Indeed, yes. And I would say in the womb, when you are still being carried in the mother's <laughs> womb, you know, and, and it, it's true, it's true, actually. And oh, there's been some, some, some studies, you know, done, you know, to look at um, moms, who um, who still physically active when they were pregnant and those who didn't. Not only is there a differential in the labor process for these two and different um, sets of women, but when those kids whose moms exercised and those whose moms didn't are followed over time, some individuals have, some studies have, have shown that there actually is a difference in the outcome in these kids. So even, even the exercise that you get um, through your your mother um, seems to have some some potential to, to benefit. Oh, oh my goodness! Uh, yes, yes. But really, you know, that there is no. It's never too early, nor is it too late to begin to exercise. And the the thing, you know, with with exercise, you know, as a lifestyle habit, you know, mm-hmm. and that is how we want to think about it, is that when you begin to take care of yourself in that in that particular way, mm-hmm. most most often. That also triggers a lifestyle change in other areas of your life because you begin you begin to, to see how everything all fits together. Mm. So you begin to take more care of your, your sleep, your diet, and so forth. So it's a holistic approach to Correct. well-being. Correct. Correct. Interesting. I've never had anybody explain it in this way that you should start when you're in your mom's womb. That's correct. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. So as we get older, muscle strength is important. For those who are listening and perhaps don't exercise, is there a cutoff time to start exercising? I know you just mentioned that it's never too late. But All right. Yes, yes, it's it's never too too late. In fact, some of the studies that we we do, uh, we um, specifically enroll individuals who are in their sixties or seventies, but who have never really been physically active their entire life, mm. and then we put we put them through um, a a period of of a physical um, exercise regimen, and we see if there is any differences between them and other people who also have have not been physically active, but who we did not put in that same regimen. 
And we see that even when someone is in the 60s and beyond, mm-hmm. and they are led through a regimen, a structured regimen of mm-hmm. exercise, that within a few short weeks, you begin to see differences in their brain and cognitive function, and even in their mood compared to other individuals who did not get put in similar programs. So really, it's it's never too, too late to begin okay. um, this um, very healthy habit of physical activity. Well, wonderful. Um, so that's that gives me hope, and it, I'm sure it gives some other people hope too who are not as active. And by the way, I'm active, but... It's still, I would say, um, it gives anybody hope who's out there who haven't started yet. So I would say jump in and get started. For, that's right. Uh, that's that's healthy right. Habit. So we hear the, the term neuroplasticity. I tend to hear it often within my circle. So I wanted to ask, what does this term mean and what activities can we engage in to increase or regrow our brain cells? Great question. So you're right that you know, it is a, a word that, that is being heard more commonly these days. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, you know, for a long time, the field of neuroscience um, kind of held this belief that pretty much when a child is born and they keep, grow- keep growing, that's um, around your mid to late teens, that pretty much you have evolved and developed all of the brain cells that you would use for the rest of your life. So the brain mm-hmm. is pretty much set at that point and does not undergo any more plastic changes as a result of experience or genetics or anything else. But over time, from a series of very you know, intriguing experiments, um, studies began to kind of you know, punch holes in this dogma And currently we know that indeed the brain continues to change even into late adulthood. As I mentioned just just previously, when we enroll individuals who have not really had any amount of physical activity and Mm -hmm. they are in their 60s, and we put them just through a few weeks of structured aerobic exercise, we are able to detect changes in their brain and cognitive function. After just a few short, short weeks, when they're already in the in the sixth or seventh decades of life. Wow. So yes, the brain does continue to change and evolve and grow new cells, you know, as a result of experience. And experience here includes you know, things like physical activity, but also, you know, activities that engage the mind. You know, mm-hmm. this includes, you know, reading, volunteering, socializing, playing games, you know, video games, board, board games, chess, cards, anything that actually in, engages the, the mind and mind. the brain has the potential to reshape and rewire the brain cells. We like to, to say that the, the brain is like a muscle, you know, mm-hmm. the more it is used, the stronger it becomes. That's wonderful. That's really good. So we should always engage in brain stimulating activities to enhance our functioning. Correct. Great. So part of your study includes sleep. Can you tell us the relationship between sleep and brain health and dementia? Yes, fantastic question. Now, the studies that we do in the areas of of sleep are are mostly done with collaborators who are the experts in this domain. 
Okay. But because again, you know, my um, lab is a multi-domain lab, we really like look at a host of factors. In this case, you know, sleep is one of those modifiable factors we have studies. I'm studied in collaboration with colleagues who are the um, content, content experts in this area. So um, a, a number of studies that began actually with studies in mice, you know, showed that when a mouse is deprived of, of sleep overnight and many days um, in a row, that they begin to build up at a faster rate the type of abnormal protein the proteins that then go on to cause Alzheimer's and other types of dementias. Mm. The most common one being amyloid plaques. Okay. And then that also slowly then other studies in, in humans began to show the same things that when humans are deprived of sleep or, or even like have a reduced number and uh, number of hours of sleeping than mm-hmm. they would typically get that the rate of clear clearance of amyloid is slower in all of those individuals. So currently, the way we've begun to understand it is that sleep is like this opportunity for not just our bodies mm-hmm. to like rest and yeah. re- refresh, but for our brains too, our central nervous system to actually rest and almost get flushed out to begin all over again. It's almost like a chance to hit reset not only for our bodies, but for our brains. And so it is very important that individuals under, understand this because a lot of times when and I will, I'm the first you know, um, culprit of this, when I have too much to do and too little time, I begin to look for areas to cut off time from. And one of the, <laughs> the first areas I go to is my sleep, you know. Okay, <laughs> I will sleep for one hour less, you know. Yeah. Um, but in the long term, really, you may have saved that hour and, and done and met that deadline. But mm-hmm. if you keep up this in the long term, it mm-hmm. actually, this, the science seems to, to um, indicate that it might have negative long-term consequences for your brain. Wow. And that happens so frequently, as you know. It's like, yes. like stuff done. Everybody's on like a deadline trying to get stuff done and sleep is something we should not compromise on. And it is the one thing also that seemed to be a point of uh, a compromise for people to go to. But yeah, so thank you. Thank you for that information. Yes, yes. So I will go back to what you were mentioning. It's It almost seemed like when you explain this, how sleep impacts our brain, it's also, it's almost like getting our brains cleaned out or washed, you know, to refresh it after, like, that's what sleep is to our brain, right? Yes. That's amazing. It well, is, I, it is. Yeah, that's really, really amazing. Now, growing up, I know, and up to late, this late, we tend to say, oh, I lost sleep for a while and I'm getting some my some of my sleep back. So when you try to like regain your sleep, you, you take a nap or, you know, you didn't have good sleep last night and you take a nap in the day. Is, is there really, do we have the ability to regain lost sleep or is this a false phenomenon? Is it a myth 
to regain sleep or did not? <laughs> I guess that's what I'm getting at because that's something that I tend to think, and I've heard that a lot, and I know that people tend to think that, but is that is that factual scientifically? Right. So again, you know, the studies that have been done in this in this area indicate that the answer is both a yes and a no, you know. And pretty okay. much it comes, it boils down to how long of a period has the individual been de- deprived of sleep. Okay. Okay. Now let's even go away from, from sleep and think about, you know, food, right? Mm-hmm. Um, think about, you know, the um, individual home for, what, for whatever reason. Let's say that, you know, sadly they were captured as a prisoner of war and they were starved, right? Mm. And, and they were stuck for like let's say two months right okay and then they were rescued right and it would be you know inconceivable that anyone would think that okay look we've rescued them let's set this table you know piled with food you know and give them all this food now and that will somehow fix the fact that they have that they have been starved right for two months like no one would think that, right? You know, yeah. because That's we cannot fix two months of starvation with a bountiful table piled high with food, huh. right? But you know, if someone you know something skipped break you know breakfast, you know, mm-hmm. and they found that they that they were um, a bit more hungry at lunch and they ate a bit more, you know, that kind of tends to even out the fact that breakfast was skipped. Not that we should skip breakfast, you know, but just mm-hmm. as, a, as an example. So, so it's a yes and a no, and it boils down, down to the duration and intensity of the sleep deprivation. That is what we may or may not be able to, to make up. But I want to emphasize that just as we said with exercise, how it's never too late to, um, mm-hmm. to begin, you know. Mm-hmm. And also with, with sleep, and pretty much with any healthy habit, you know, it's never too late to realize that oh, I can choose differently. I Mm. can do differently. And to begin at that point to reset the clock to uh, adopt a healthier lifestyle, the same applies for sleep too. Wonderful. I I really love your sleep analogy. I guess I've, you know, with food and starvation and I've never think about it that way. I've never heard somebody explain it that way. So it, it just makes so much sense. Yeah. Yes, you're welcome. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. so, sometimes, um, you know, as you know, you know, growing I'm up, you know, our el- elders told lots of stories, you mm-hmm. know, and those stories may not always be true, mm-hmm. but they always taught a lesson that really can cannot be taught better with just using words, you know. Yeah. And and you know, we all learned growing up and to kind of adopt that that same attitude that sometimes an analogy you know, makes the point stronger than an abstract sentence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. 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 So your research assess brain health using many different markers. Can you tell us a little bit about how your research assess brain health? Yes. So as you know, uh, I am part of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Mm-hmm. And so um, being fortunate enough to be at such a world-class institution as the University of Wisconsin, it makes available to me and pretty much to all of my, co- my colleagues mm-hmm. really top-of-the-line scientific um, equipment 
and procedures that allows us to study the human brain in ways that not every other scientist might have access to. So in studying the brain and the central nervous system, mm -hmm. we do a series of brain imaging, different okay. types. You know, when, when people hear MRI, they tend to just think that there is one, one thing called MRI, but mm -hmm. there actually are many different types of brain sequences that can be done under the umbrella term MRI. Okay. Some of them are looking at the structure of the brain. Okay. Some are looking at how the brain cells are connected, kind of mm -hmm. how the white matter tracts are connected. Some of them are looking at how blood is flowing in the brain. Mm -hmm. And some of them are looking at how does the brain respond acutely to experience. So, and all of this fall under the term MRI. Okay. Um, so out, um, outside of MRI, we also do what is called PET scans. Mm -hmm. And PET scans are different from, from, from MRIs. Okay. Um, PET scans allows, allows us to understand how certain types of dynamic changes are occurring in the brain. Okay. And so, for instance, you know, PET scans are what allows us to investigate um, whether somebody has amyloid in their brain. And as okay. we know, amyloid is the protein that is most responsible for Alzheimer's. Right. And so we kind of inject the individual with a little dye, and then that dye is taken up in the brain. And then we're able to take a picture in real time of the brain and see where those where that dye is lighting up. Okay. That, that helps us understand, you know, if this individual has amyloid and if so, where in the brain they, they do. In addition to um, brain, brain scans, we, mm -hmm. we also collect cerebrospinal fluid. Okay. So our brains that sit in our skulls, our brains actually are sitting in this like little bath water in the like you know like our scrub our 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 skulls are like this little bathtub you know that oh. our brains are, are are sitting in and cerebrospinal fluid is like the bath water that our brains are sitting in okay and so we are able to take a very small quantities from the lower back you know from okay. the, from the lo your lower back okay um and then we test those samples for the presence of some of this, these proteins that we know are indicative of Alzheimer's and other types of dementias. So these are some of the ways that we are able to study the brain. And currently, you know, more recently, we've also found ways to use blood samples to test for those same proteins that we previously could only test through cerebrospinal fluid. So um, advances continue to be made that allows, allows us to have a more in-depth look at the brain's health and sadly at the brain state of disease too. Well, you know, thank you. I appreciate uh, you sharing that advances continue to make to happen so that more, more tools and more ways of investigation is happening to identify this disease and to tackle it where it can be. Yes. So that, that is very much needed. And I do appreciate all the work you and your colleagues are doing in that front. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank you. You know, it honestly takes a village, um, everyone doing their part to make something like this um, happen because to really do good, sci good science, you know, gone are the days when that can just be done by a single 
principal investigator in the lab with two or three students, you know, mm-hmm. science this this is is so complex that mm-hmm. to answer the big questions, it really takes a, a team. And that is where the concept of team science comes comes from. It right. takes a big, a big village, yes, to make all of this happen. And I'm so grateful for the wonderful and colleagues and students that I have who do all of this wonderful work with me. Thank you. So are there a certain marker in the brain of the brain health that begins to change without being aware, without people being aware or without being us being aware of it? Yes. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, with, with the use and with the advantage of having access to top of the, of the line brain scans, mm-hmm. we are actually able to actually um, have a window into, into the brain to understand some of the very earliest changes that happen when individuals are starting to go down this unfortunate path towards mm-hmm. having Alzheimer's. So we're able to use both PET scans and MRI scans and even some um, advanced cognitive tests to really study how the brain is doing. So with the combination of of these different tools and approaches, we are able to get a sense at at some of those very earliest changes that might be happening when the individual is still in their 40s or 50s and, and for all intents and purposes are doing well. But sadly, they already have, they already are at that point on this path that might in the future lead to dementia. Yeah. So tell me, what is the significance of early detection and how does that help the individual as they walk this journey? Right. And that is a wonderful question. And we get that all the time, but particularly um, in the era before now or before just this week, when uh, there really was not really a cure. And, and, there, and there still isn't a cure, and by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but before this time, you know, we got that question a lot, like, what does it matter? And we, we like to say that again, you know, it, it varies from individuals to individuals. You know, mm-hmm. there are individuals who do not want to know. They simply want to enjoy every day and fully and not be, you know, burdened okay. by a thought that they might be on the path to a disease that is terminal. Mm-hmm. And but for those other other individuals who kind of have a thing where they, they like to have knowledge and, and information, you know. Being able to identify that something is starting to happen in your brain that might put you at risk for mm-hmm. dementia or Alzheimer's and down the road, some individuals use that opportunity almost as a wake-up call. Okay, now I maybe I only have maybe say 10 years, if I know. Mm-hmm. I want to be extremely intentional in how I spend those 10, uh, 10 years. I want to re- rearrange my, my life so that my kids don't have to worry about X or Y or Z. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to travel more, mm-hmm. you know. But even if we um, circle back to where this podcast I'm started yeah. about the focus of my research, right? Yes. Um, it's cognitive reserve and resilience. Okay. We have shown that not everybody who has this early warning signs of mm-hmm. brain changes go on to develop dementia right and so for some individuals this wake-up call 
might also be an opportunity for them to begin today, if they've not been doing it, to mm-hmm. begin to adopt some of these healthy lifestyles that mm-hmm. we have shown has the potential to delay the progression of the disease. So these are a number of the reasons why an early de- detection might be helpful. But again, you know, there are individuals for, for whom maybe it just creates more worry than mm-hmm. anything else. And we also acknowledge that too. Yeah, so thank you. I mean, um, all of those reasons are wonderful, but to think that early detection and taking charge of your life, you know, change, making some changes to a better, healthier lifestyle can delay that onset. And perhaps you don't even show symptoms at all. It's remarkable. I think even that in itself, it's a reason, it's a big reason for anybody to want to know, but you're right for those who don't want to worry as well, that that is what it is too, can be acknowledged. Yes, correct, 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 you know. And, you know, I I want to say, you know, that excessive worry, you know, Mm -hmm. is something that some groups have also been shown to put individuals at risk for different types of cognitive impairments and dementias, you know. So if if somebody really knows themselves and knows that they are prone to to that, then in a way we respect and we we honor um, where they are coming from and the Mm -hmm. truth about themselves, yeah. That's that's true, that's true. So are you recruiting now? Um, Currently, we, we, yes, we are recruiting. However, for the studies that we have going on, um, all of our participants come to, to us um, because they, they already are enrolled in one of two large studies at our center. So mm-hmm. they either are already in the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center Clinical Core, okay. or they are in this other study called the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention. Okay. So they, they already are uh, enrolled in these two That's very rapid. large studies. And then they come into our studies from either of those two pipelines. So currently, we do not have any studies that are enrolling from the community. But that will be something I'll be happy to share with your audience when the studies come along. Okay. That would be great. So that yes. they can understand what the process is to enroll in those programs or the study. So we know that old age comes with uh, many challenges, both in terms of physical health, mental health, and well-being. So from your point of view as a researcher of the brain and a neurosystem, what is the difference between healthy aging and super aging? That is a wonderful, wonderful question. So maybe it might be easier to start with talking about what super aging is okay. and then to, to, to dial it down from, from there. Yeah. And as with science, you know, as with all, uh, um, all other areas of science, if you ask 10 scientists, you know, one a question, you probably will get 10, 10 different answers, you right. know. So the, the, the term super, super aging also tends to be used in different ways by different individuals. Mm-hmm. However, the con- conventional understanding of super aging mm-hmm. is this phenomenon where some individuals 
when you look at them in their 70s, mm-hmm. not only are they sharp, good, in great health, everything for being 70, mm-hmm. they actually are in better health, mental, physical, and otherwise, than someone who is decades younger. Mm. So in terms of their health and their well-being, both mentally and physically and otherwise, they are per- performing as well as someone who is 50. That is super aging. That is super aging. Correct. Now. That is that, super aging. This podcast right here. <laughs> that's right. That, that's right. That's that's right. This podcast here is super aging. That's right. It is, it is way out of this, this world. It is like way all the way there. That's right. Yep. <laughs> we strive for the that's, best. That's, that's right. It, it's, just, it's just, you know, just um, crushing it. It's killing it. There yes. you go. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, for the rest of us mere, you know, models, you know, who are not in the super aging, you know, like like you and your <laughs> podcast, you know, um, healthy aging, you know, just means that for whatever stage of life you are you are at, mm-hmm. you are doing well for that stage of life. Okay. So if you are seventy, you are in this in the state of health that mm-hmm. will be expected of the typical of the average seventy year old. If you are if you are eighty. You are in the state of health that is typical of an an an, yeah. an eighty year old, and I think that that is what most people aspire to. And mm-hmm. honestly, that is what the majority of people are only going to be capable of. Super aging is a rare phenomenon, mm-hmm. and and I have a very good friend and and colleague um, in Chicago, yeah. and we might mm-hmm. have a joint study starting up here in Wisconsin soon. And but it's extremely hard to find these individuals. You have to screen thousands and thousands of people wow. to, to find them because it is it is not the natural order of things, mm-hmm. and hence it is called super aging. aging. That's right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so is it is it uh, is your colleague in Northwestern? Correct. So because she is Dr. Where, Emily yeah. Rogalski. Um, at North and Western, and, and she has been following this um, cohort of super agers. And we just, um, last year, we submitted a big grant to the NIH to expand her study to multiple sites. And Wisconsin is going to be one of those sites if the grant gets funded. Fingers crossed. Yes. Fingers, fingers crossed. Well, fingers, fingers crossed. crossed. That's going to happen. That's wonderful. And what is her name again? I'm Dr. Emily Rogalski. She is at Northwestern yes. in Chicago. Okay. Yep. That's I I saw her work online. So great. So what type of changes in mood, behavior, or thinking ability comes with age that are cause for concerns? And yeah, uh, and those that are not a cause for concern. What what kind of changes would you see that would be like normal and what is not normal? Yes, and, and you know that also is a very common question that we get, particularly when I I still um saw um, patients in the clinic. We got those questions all the time, not just from the patients who came in the clinic, but from their their son or their daughter who accompanied mm-hmm. you know them. One of the changes that happen very er- early as people age is mm-hmm. change in language, particularly change in remembrance of names okay um, you know you meet that that person at a party and you're like i i know i know him 
I, I know where I know him, him from, but is it is it James or Jennifer or Haleo or oh, no, you know like the search for so the 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 challenge with remembering names mm-hmm. is one of the most early and and I would say naturally occurring changes that happen with age, and sometimes you know, people begin to get worried that that might be indicative of something else. Um, sometimes it is. But in the majority of, of cases, it is just the natural sequence of aging. The other thing that happens very commonly with aging is there is, so it is not only that our bodies get slower, like perhaps, you know, when you were in your 20s, you could run, you know, a mile in eight, eight minutes, right? Mm-hmm. But now you're in your 70s. It would be ridiculous to think that, you know, you will also run, you know, the same mile in eight minutes, right? Now, yeah. some people can, and those are the super agers, right? Those but are for most everybody, That's right, you, that's right. <laughs> you know, but for most everybody else, you know, there is a slowing down of the body that we, we cannot walk as hard or as fast as we used, used to. The same thing too happens with our brains, mm. you know? The information is still, is still there, mm-hmm. but the speed with which we can access it is much slower. So mm-hmm. a, a slower speed of processing, as it is called, speed of processing, gets slower with aging, and that is very normal. Some amount of a change in memory is normal also with aging. Mm-hmm. And even now, you know, and I don't think I'm an old man quite yet, you know, um, <laughs> I walk into a room to do, some, do something, and I get there, and I'm like, wait, why did I come into this room again, you know? I forget, right? No, seriously, so, that's my life too. There you go, you know? <laughs> right, you know, but, but when some people are in their 70s or 80s or and, they, and when they have such um, incidents, they begin to worry that it's a sign of something else. That happens to people who are, who are also, also young. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you park your, your car and you go into a store and you come out and you can't remember if you parked further down this way, left, right, like it's like a big, a big blur. Right. So these are some of those things that are just part of the natural pro- process of aging. When it begins to be a little bit more consistent is A, when it becomes more frequent mm-hmm. and B, more severe. Huh. Like for instance, you know, just to, to give an, an extreme example, when people begin to have the you know more moderate and forms of Alzheimer's or other types of dementia, they mm-hmm. couldn't even remember what you what you just told told them right now in this right. in this in this space, mm-hmm. you know, or um, you know they've just had breakfast mm-hmm. and you ask them a half hour later, you know, what they had for breakfast and they could not tell you. Right now, those are, I mean you know I I kind of use that that extreme example right. to kind of make clear the types of changes that for sure are not part of the normal aging process. Okay. Yeah. So some, some change, to summarize, you know, some change in cognition is to be expected with aging. And some of the most common ones, you know, is a slower speed of processing, mm-hmm. trouble with remembering names, and some change in memory. Right, right. I like how you use analogies to explain these things. It clicks much more clearly. 
I know when you said processing speed, I'm thinking about computer, you know, and as they get old, obviously they perform slower. So there you go. same for our brains. So I, I like there you it. Go. There you so go. Much. Precisely. Like, like, yes, yes. Great, great analogy there. Precisely right. that. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, well, so to help our listeners who may not be familiar with Alzheimer's or dementia, can you give us a basic overview of what is happening in the brain when someone develops Alzheimer's? Right. And that, thank you for asking that question. Mm-hmm. And so um, as I men- mentioned earlier on in the, in the podcast, um, mm-hmm. there are certain protein abnormalities that occur in the brain that when we see it, we, we say that this individual you know, is on the path, pathway to Alzheimer's. Mm. One of those chain, changes is the build-up the build of a protein called amyloid. Mm-hmm. And that build-up build then clumps together and forms plaques. Okay. So when we begin to see this amyloid, amyloid plaques in the brains, we begin to have worry that this individual might be on the pathway to having Alzheimer's as a clinical syndrome. And actually, I want to take this chance to kind of make a, distinct, a distinction that has become very um, better understood now in the scientific world. Mm-hmm. Previously, when we talked, about, when someone used the word Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. we think like what, what we mean by, by that is dementia of the Alzheimer's type. Okay. So Alzheimer's equals dementia. Mm-hmm. But over time, particularly with the types of studies I described, when we see that not everybody who has protein buildups mm-hmm. go on to develop cognitive symptoms, there's become a more nuanced way of talking about this phenomenon. So there is Alzheimer's pathology, there is Alzheimer's as a brain disease, and then okay. there is Alzheimer's clinical syndrome, and that is what dementia is. Ah, okay. So... Going back to, to this, describing the, pro, the protein buildup build in the brain, mm-hmm. when the individual has this abnormal clumps of plaques in their brain, at that point, they actually have Alzheimer's as a brain disease. Okay. So in addition to plaques, the, the other very um, essential feature of Alzheimer's as a brain disease is something called tan- tangles. Mm-hmm. Tangles form inside the neurons of okay. the brain. And pretty much, you know, it looks just as it sounds, you know, the strings inside the neuron becomes tan- tangled up. And okay. that is what it is called tangles. Tangled. Okay. So amyloid plaques and tau tangles are the two main features of Alzheimer's as a brain disease. Now, as the disease begins to advance a little bit, bit more, other mm-hmm. things begin to also happen in the brain structure itself. There is a loss of actual brain cells, so a loss of neurons, a mm-hmm. loss of synapses okay. in specific areas of the, of the brain. One of them is an area called the hippocampus. Okay. And that is the area of the brain that allows us to learn and remember. Mm. And it is this loss of neurons and synapses in the hippocampus that underlies the profound memory deficits 
okay. that we see in people with Alzheimer's dementia. So these are the three, you know, typical changes that occur in the brain of someone who sadly is on the path to okay. developing Alzheimer's. Mm. There's the plaques, there's the tangles, and then there's the brain tissue loss. Oh, okay. It was called brain atrophy. I see. Great explanation. Thank you, Dr. Okanko. While we can't see what's going on in the brain, what type of changes in behavior will we see in specifically people who have Alzheimer's? Yes, great question. You know, and um, the way I think of um, behavior, I think of it as a more encompassing term that in includes cognition. In fact, mm. cognition is the most prominent behavior that each of us exhibits every day. Because even when we are sitting, you know, in a, in, a, in an empty room, our brains are working, and mm -hmm. that is behavior too. You know, right, and so right. the the most typical be behavior that is found when, in someone who is on the path to having Alzheimer's type of dementia is a change in memory. Okay. And it's a change in a particular type of memory called episodic memory. So memory for episodes. Okay. And that and that is why, as you have, as I'm sure you have um, experienced too in your in your work um, in the in the caregiver business, that even individuals who are in the most profound um, stages of Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. they oftentimes can can tell you the exact color of the tie they wore to senior prom. They can tell you the exact place they proposed to their spouse. Right. They can tell you some of these very things from like way back. Way back. Okay, go. You know, yes. they remember all of this. But as you are, as they are telling you that, if you kind of interrupt rub them and ask them a question, they're like, what did you ask? Like they, they are not even able to track the question you asked them ask. in that yes. instance. Yes. But they are able to remember things from way back ago. Absolutely. So, so there are different types of, of memories and the mm -hmm. memories that seem to be mostly affected by Alzheimer's are memory for episodes. Okay. Like, you know, who won the Super Bowl last, last year? And um, what did you have for breakfast? Okay. Um, what time did your um, cousin or aunt come to drop off the checks to sign? Mm. Um, all of the, those, you know, so 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 those are all episodes, and those are the types of things that individuals with Alzheimer's have the most struggle with. Now, thinking about other other types of behavior, mm -hmm. um, and in the in the uh, classic sense that we use behavior, you know, right. behavioral chain changes in Alzheimer's, and you know this very well, you know, they mm -hmm. are not that common in the earlier stages or in the milder stages of Alzheimer's. Right. They become more prominent towards the middle and later stages of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And actually, again, this is clearly a space you occupy. In many cases, mm -hmm. it is not the cognitive changes of Alzheimer's that lead families to place a loved one in a facility. Right. It's actually the behavioral changes. Mm -hmm. That is what families are the, are the least equipped to deal to deal with. Right. And when they no longer know how to manage those behaviors, mm -hmm. they end up having to have the, the person out. placed in a home. Right. And so 
But interestingly, though, you know, in the in the um, moderate to severe stages of dementia, yes, most um, people tend tend to become more aggressive or combative, mm-hmm. you know, or just um, being non-cooperative. Mm-hmm. But that is not the only way behaviors can change as mm-hmm. Alzheimer's progresses. It can also go the other way. Mm-hmm. That someone, in fact, this is some of what this happens more in the earlier stages. Mm-hmm. That somebody whose home has always been extremely clean, mm-hmm. extremely neat and tidy, everything goes where it belongs. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you come in their house, and it's, it's clear that they have not, you know, swept the house forever or, right. or dusted or mm-hmm. done laundry, mm-hmm. you know. So those are some of those things that could also you know, happen that people go go from being very meticulous you know, mm-hmm. to being almost like care, carefree. Right. So these are some of the range of behaviors that can happen when someone is on the, on the path to Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. It is in, 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 important though, and this is why um, access to a great cl- um, clinician and hospital um, system is, is wonderful, mm-hmm. that some of these types of changes may not be due to dementia or due to Alzheimer's. Okay. They could be due to a psych- psychiatric syndrome that is occurring in late life. Okay. And it would take, you know, a well-trained and physician or, or clinician to really understand that anticipate and apart. Mm. It, could, it could also occur in the, con- in the con- context of even some, something as, as, you know, um, innocuous as an infection, a UTI. Yes. You know, when an other it's adult has an infection, it affects how they actually think and process and see the world, mm-hmm. you know. And so when when that is not pro- properly diagnosed and, tre- and treated, mm-hmm. that person may be misclassified as beginning to have a dementia when it was just something that can be resolved and bring them back to baseline. That is, that is true. And UTIs tend to be something very common in the elderly Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So experts such as yourself have identified that the disease or conditions that affect blood vessels and can impair blood flow, thereby potentially risking, um, raising the risk to develop Alzheimer's. Can you tell us, um, can you tell our listeners what we understand about the link between the cardiovascular health and brain health? Fantastic question. Fantastic. And I I will begin it with a saying that is mostly non-commonplace. What is good for your heart is also good for your head, otherwise called (laughs) your your brain. Brain, yes. Um, Right. So it is now increasingly very well understood that there is this close interconnection and interplay between our our vascular health and our brain, brain health. Mm. So the brain is an interesting organ. It, it, it weighs at most um, about 5% you know, of um, our body and weight, but mm-hmm. it con- consumes about 20% of the energy demands of the body. Mm-hmm. And where that energy comes from is from the oxygen and other nutrients that are trans- transported by the vascular system. So okay. obviously when the vascular system is impacted, the brain by default also suffers as a result. Mm. 
you know, with um, we discussed earlier how you know sleep you know helps helps clear to- toxins right um, from the brain. Mm-hmm. Part of that clearing process too is you know, um, occurs with the in inflow and outflow of blood to the brain and out of the brain. Okay, um, and that is again why now we are we are now better able to do some tests in the blood to mm-hmm. find evidence or absence for some types of diseases of the brain. So vascular health is, um, is ex- extremely important for brain health. And as you may, may recall, earlier on on the podcast, we described how although all types of physical activity is good, mm-hmm. the ones that have shown the most evidence for inf- influen- influencing in a positive way our brain health are aerobic exercises so those okay. that kind of get the heart pumping because then that also quote quote feeds the brain the brain gets access to the new the nutrients the oxygen and other demands that the brain the brain has so that okay. is how those two two things are connected the heart and the and the brain excellent so what type of changes can we make in our own day-to-day activities to benefit our brain health? There are a number of them. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the one that we've talked um, a lot about during this podcast is staying physically active. active you yeah. know? And that can be a range of things. So it's not only going out to run a marathon. Mm-hmm. It could be as simple as, you know, when you are taking a phone call, you know, instead of sitting down in you know, the take call, you walk slow, slowly back and, and forth you know, back and, and forth or, or around your, your living room or your bedroom or your garden or your yard as you're taking that call. That is a way to, to build physical activity into your day. Instead of taking the elevators to the fourth, fourth floor or third floor or second floor even, you mm-hmm. take the stairs. When you go to a store, you know, instead of finding that parking lot that is just right at the door, you know, right. you find one that is, you know, two or, or three or four or four slots down and you and you walk. So there are little ways that we can build physical activity into our day. And this have incredible benefits to our brain, brain health. We also discuss sleep. Mm-hmm. Sleep is an important way for caring for our, not just our bodies, like, I mean, all of us are aware of how our bodies feel when we get a good night's sleep and when right. we, we dance. The same is also true for our, our brain. While we, we may not feel it directly, our brain, you know, also thanks us, you know, for, for having a good night's, night's and sleep, you know, when we, yes. we do. So, so there's exercise that is, that is sleep, that is in, engaging in cognitively stimulating activities which we dis- discussed also, reading, volunteering, board games, puzzles, checkers, mm-hmm. Sudoku, all of that. Um, these are all, all things that help us engage the, the brain okay. and therefore benefits our brain, brain health. We've talked about diet. You know, yes. that is also incredibly important because, again, what we eat, you know, is ab- absorbed um, um, into the bloodstream. And we mentioned how our blood in the circulates to the, the brain to bring oxygen and other important nutrients to mm-hmm. our brains. So these are just a host of different ways 
that we can engage in every day to ensure better brain, brain health for ourselves. Wonderful. One final question to you, Osioma. Do you act on what you preach? So tell us what your self-care is. What do you do? Yes. Uh, gosh, I was afraid that you would ask this, que- this, que- this question. <laughs> so I am going to start with the one I do well. All right. <laughs> and, and that is I am very much physically active. Yeah. I go to the gym. I work out six, six days a week. Mm-hmm. And actually, it used to be seven days a week until okay. my trainer said, oh, no, 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 no. You have to have at least one day off. Oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so that was how I, I dialed it back to six, six days a week. So I am very much physically active. I, I, I love it. I love just, um, you know, and taking good care of my body um, and my brain too in that, in that way. Now, that said, the one I do not do very well and which I already gave a hint of earlier on is sleep. Mm-hmm. I, it, is, it is a battle I fight every day. You know, um, I say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to bed at a decent time and sleep for a long time. And I seem to always have more work than I can fit into <laughs> a 24-hour day. So I have to shave off an hour here, shave an hour there. And oh, sleep is, is what gets shaved those hours from the most. So it is definitely not an, an area I'm proud of, but it's something I am working on. And, and I hope to finally, at some point, gain some, some, some good balance where I have a regular sleep-wake cycle mm-hmm. and because I know that that is vitally important for my brain right. health. Absolutely. So, yes. So I, I like the fact that you identify where you're coming sword and now I'm just going to say just pay me some money so I can you know coach you on time management so you can you know sleep on time <laughs> you know I, I I think I should do that I should do that I should really do that but yes. thank you so very much for your time today Osioma and for discussing your knowledge on brain health it's truly a delight and a privilege to have you on and as you know I'm always proud of you so thank you for your work. My, my pleasure, sis. My pleasure. It's so wonderful to see all the great things that you are, you are doing, including the, the launch of this Super Aging podcast. It's amazing. And I'm, as you know, you're your biggest fan. And I'm so incredibly proud of you too. Congratulations on all your accomplishments. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. So thank you for tuning in to Super Aging Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it so. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out by leaving us a comment or email us at superagentpodcast at gmail.com or connect with us in social media sites. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our podcast and any of your favorite listening sites. Until next time, take good care.